topic of this year is Das Torah. the term Das Torah is used today, it means that any decision that a person makes, any position that he takes, anything that he believes, any of his values should be determined by the sum total of Torah scholarship and Torah understanding that's relevant to the subject. Of course, uh, the sum total. How would a person have access to the sum total of Torah knowledge and understanding that's relevant to his subject? In almost all cases, he doesn't possess it individually. So you go to a scholar. In the ideal case, you go to one of the leading scholars of your generation and you get the best you can get. not perfect. No human thing is perfect. It's not as good as it was 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. That's true. But you get the best you can get. Because you want whatever you're doing to be as informed by that means made into formed by, influenced by, determined by the Torah where it's relevant to what you're doing. Now, if I put it that way, it might be hard to appreciate that this is a controversial topic. It's a controversial topic. How could this, how could this be controversial? The Torah addresses every aspect of life. And that being the case, if there's anything I want to do, the Torah addresses it, that I want to do what the Torah wants me to do about it. Nevertheless, there's a lot of controversy, the majority of which is irresponsible, the rest of which is well-meaning but ignorant, where people question the invention of the term. I've seen one writer say that the whole term and concept were invented 100 years ago. They were invented for political purposes, so that certain political organizations... Hmm? Das Torah. Um, it was invented so certain groups could have control over the population. They wouldn't think for themselves and so on and so on. As a matter of fact, the term is found in the Gemara and Chulin. So it's a term that Chazal used. I want to share with you some sources to show you how far the idea goes. The idea that your, your decisions and your policies should be formed by the best Torah information of the times 
insources that anybody who's, who's uh, faithful to classical Jewish sources cannot possibly deny. As a Gemara, Mesech Tebeya, Mamed Bab, Mamed Beis, 36b. Now the case that took place And what it says this. Bay Rechaya da Baye Dolf. Rechaya is um, a mill. Now, mills in those days, you had big water mills, and then you had hand mills that people had in their houses, and they, they ground by hand. Abaye had a hand mill in his house. Now, in the room of his house where he had the hand mill, there was a leak in the roof. And the water was coming into a hole in the roof into a vessel that was catching the water. But the vessel was filling up. And it happened that it was Shabbos. Now, when the vessel fills up with water, it's going to overflow. When it overflows, it's going to come in contact with the mill. That the mill was made out of tit, which means hardened earth. And if water comes in contact with it, it's going to dissolve it. And therefore, the rainwater spilling out of the vessel is going to ruin Abai's mill. On the other hand, what should he do? I mean, ideally, if it weren't Shabbos, what he would do is, when the vessel got full, he would dump it outside and quickly run back and put it under the leak and he would protect his... Well, the problem of Shabbos is that the water is muktzah. So you can't move it. Okay. I, I can't give you a share of the whole... You didn't prepare it before Shabbos. It has no use. It wasn't in your domain before Shabbos. There are lots and lots of reasons. Okay. So Abai had this dilemma. What am I going to do to save my mill? He came in front of Rabbah. Rabbah was his teacher. Rabbah was the teacher of Abai and Rabbah. He came in front of his teacher. And said to him, what shall I do? Amalei. Rabbah said to Abai, Zil alei lepuryach lohasam. Go and take your dining couch. When they had a formal meal, they reclined on couches. Go and take your dining couch into the room that has the hole in the roof and the mill. Now, that vessel's filling up with the dirty water pouring in from the roof. That's pretty disgusting. It's dirty and it has a bad smell and so on and so on. And we have a rule that something that's disgusting you may remove on Shabbos. Even though it otherwise would be muktzah, you're allowed to remove it. So, when the water fills up and it's disgusting, 
then afkei. Then empty it out. In that way, you can empty out the, the vessel. Every time it gets full, you can empty it out again and save your meal. Okay, Yossi Abai. Abai sat. Kakashile. And it disturbed him. This um, statement of Rabbis disturbed him. Do you act in such a way as to create a situation where something is disgusting to you so as to be able to move it? Are you allowed to take action where, after all, I'm not eating in that room. I'm not reclining in that room. I'm eating someplace else. Rabbi said, take your dining couch into that room and then when you lie down on your couch in that room, it'll be disgusting to you and then throw it out. Is that the appropriate thing to do? Now, um, the commentators do talk here about the general principle. Are you allowed to make something disgusting so as to be able to move it? And as general principle, to um, act on an item, to make the item disgusting so as to have an excuse to move it, is not, is not permissible. It's not permissible. But that's not exactly what's happening here. It isn't as if I want to move X, so I crack a rotten egg over it, and now it's disgusting, so I move it because it's disgusting. That's not what's going on here. He's not making the item disgusting. It's inherently disgusting. But he's not there. So Rabbi says, move in there. When you move in there, then it's disgusting. You can move it out. So Abai thought to himself, Okay, it's not exactly the same as what I know is forbidden, but it's similar. Should you do this? Shouldn't you do this? Adahachi, while he was pondering this objection, this difficulty, the water reached his mill and the mill collapsed. Omar, Abai, when he saw that his mill had collapsed, said, Taisili, the Avri Adamar. I deserve this because I violated my teacher's statement. Rashi, there's very little of those words I'm putting a little in. Rashi says, Tavoani, Zos, Bishari. This uh, happened to me appropriately as my reward. Shavati al Divrei Rabbi. I violated the words of my Rabbi. Now let's think this through. Abai has a problem and he's looking for a solution. His teacher gives him a solution by way of giving him a permission slip. Here's how you can solve it. Move your couch in there, then it's disgusting, then it's mutter to throw it out. He's giving him a heter, he's giving him a leniency. He's giving him a permission slip. Permission slip? Must I follow, follow every permission slip? Don't we have an idea? that the person is allowed to be machmer on himself, to be stringent with himself and say, yes, there is a way to allow it, but I choose not to allow it. I choose to be more stringent. What is, what is Abai doing here? Rabbi gave him a leniency, and Abai is not certain whether the leniency is really good or isn't good, or how to figure it out, how to understand it, patting it back and forth. He didn't take the leniency. In the end, because of his doubts, because of his uh, 
mental investigation, he didn't take the leniency. He didn't take the leniency. Is that bad? Is that wrong? Must you use every permission slip that you have? So the mill collapsed and he says, I'm being punished, rightly punished, because I violated the words of my Rebbe. In what way did he violate them? All the Rebbe says, you're permitted to do this. So Rebbe didn't say you have to do this. Yeah, but he lost his mill. He lost his mill. Losing his mill means that he had some serious doubts. His Rebbe told him this is permissible and he didn't trust it. He didn't trust it. Otherwise, if he had trusted it, he wouldn't have risked losing his, his mill. He didn't trust it. What comes out of this Gemara is something very simple. That when your Rebbe tells you something, you have to trust it. Trust it as true even if you think you have an objection, even if you think that you don't understand it, you have something that's not clear to you, and if you act in such a way that it means you're violating it, after all, you lost your mill, then you're acting inappropriately. Now, no one says that he should pretend to understand what he doesn't understand. No one says that he should dismiss the objection from his mind. No. He can maintain the objection from in his mind and he can make a note. The next time I see my teacher, I'll go and ask him, what about this objection? But in the meantime, you asked him and you got an answer. You should have trusted it and relied, it, relied upon it. And not even hesitated to act on it. This shows you how a person is bound to follow the opinion that's given to him by his, by his teacher, even if, even if the opinion is a leniency, he's not allowed to act more stringently on, uh, for himself. With, in a way that would imply that he doesn't accept it, can't rely upon it. Okay? There's another case in Rosh Hashanah, which... We learn both of these because we're learning Dafyomi. The the Gemishnah here is talking about using a sighting of the new moon to declare when the new month should start. And the Mishnah has some considerable astronomical inf- information about what is possible to see and what is not possible to see. And since the rabbis were in possession of this astronomical information, when a witness came and declared that he saw the new moon, they could ask him, where did you see it? When did you see it? Was it before the sun, behind or after the sun? Which way was it pointing? How much time was it up? How big was the crescent? And they could determine often whether this witness was either lying or making an honest mistake by confusing some other image with the moon or whether what he's saying is accurate. Two witnesses came to Rav Agamliel. Agamliel was the Nasi, the political and religious head of the Jewish community. And they gave a report as to how they saw the moon. And he accepted their testimony and declared that that day was Rosh Chodesh, which means that the, was meant the previous month was only 29 days. It so happens that the day on which he did this was the first of Tishrei. That means it's Rosh Hashanah. 
and he declared that that day was Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Dosa ben Hurkanis said that the witnesses are liars because on the basis of my astronomical knowledge, I know they could not have seen what they claimed to see. Rabbi Gamliel, who accepted them, made a mistake. Rabbi Yoshua, hearing both sides of the story, said, I agree. I agree with Rabbi Dosa. Rabbi Gamliel made a mistake. So they have two against Rabbi Gamliel. Rabbi Gamliel sent a, a messenger to Rabbi Yeshua. And he said, I make a decree on you that you should come to me with your staff and with a money bag on Yom Kippur that falls out according to your calculation. In other words, let's say Rabbi Gamliel declared that uh, Tuesday was Rosh Hashanah. According to Yeshua and Rabbi Dosa, the witnesses are liars. So Tuesday is not Rosh Hashanah. Wednesday is Rosh Hashanah. No, maybe that shows a bad example. Uh, no, it'll be Friday. So then, let's say Monday and Tuesday. He said Monday and they said Tuesday. If you say Tuesday is Rosh Hashanah, then Yom Kippur is the following Thursday. If you say Monday is Rosh Hashanah, then Yom Kippur is the following Wednesday. Said Rebbe Kamliel, I make a decree against you. He was the Nasi, he was the, the, the leader. I make a decree on you, Rabbi Yeshua, that you should appear before me with your walking stick and your money bag on the day that your calculation would make into Yom Kippur. Which, in the case of my example, now is Thursday. Because I want a public demonstration that you accepted my position. Okay, it's a good question. But anyway, there's some kind of violation of Yom Kippur to do it that way. Carrying a public or money's muktzah, whatever it is. Oh, okay. It's a public demonstration that you accepted my authority that I said it was Wednesday and not Thursday. So Rabbi Kiva went and found him very upset. Found Rabbi Shu very upset. So Rabbi Kiva said... I can tell, I, can, I have a teaching for you, which you actually heard from somebody else. You actually heard from Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua forgot about it. That whatever Rabbi Gamliel does is done, the court controls the beginning of the month, when the court decides that the month begins, it begins. If the witnesses are right, if the witnesses are wrong, if the witnesses are lying, it makes no difference. The court is in control of the new month. The new month is not determined by the moon, the new month is determined by the court. Yes! We do accept witnesses and we try to make it according to the moon. That itself is Machlechus Roshoni. But in the end of the, of, the, of, the, of the calculation, when the court says it is, it is, whether the witnesses were right, whether they were wrong, whether the moon was seen, whether the moon wasn't seen, we don't care. It's up to, all up to the court. And Yeshua accepted it. He was very happy that, you know, he wasn't really violating Yom Kippur according to his calculation because he now sees that although he still believes that astronomically, He's right, and the witnesses were liars. But Ramakamil declared that it's the beginning of the month. It is the beginning of the month. Now, there's a Brysa that describes what happens when he arrives. The, the Mishnah describes it in more uh, simple terms, and the Brysa has a little more detail. Now, Yeshua appears in Ramakamil's court. Tadarabonan. When Rabbi Gamliel saw Rabbi Yeshua coming, 
Rabban Gamliel got up off his chair, went over to Yeshua, kissed him on his head and said, Shalom Alecha, Rabbi Vitalmidi. Shalom Alecha, right? Welcome. My teacher and my disciple. Rabbi, you are my Rabbi, my superior, because you taught me Torah. He was a student of Rabbi Yeshua's. You taught me Torah in public. The Talmidi, and you are my disciple, Shani Talmid. I made a decree against you, and you fulfilled it as if you were my disciple. Whereas really, in terms of scholarship, you're my superior. But I made a decree against you, and you fulfilled it as if you were my inferior, as if you were my disciple. The commentators say, because Rabbi Gamliel was a Nasi, he was the, he was the leader, and his, he therefore had the authority to do this. Now, the Brysa concludes, Ashrei Hador, happy is the generation, Shagadolim Nishmoyim Lektani, that the greater listen to the smaller. Rabbi Yeshua, who was greater than Rabbi Gamliel in scholarship, listened to Rabbi Gamliel because of his authority as being the Nasi, and he came and did his, what he decreed. Happy is the generation where the great listen to the small. Kavachomer. It's a Kavachomer, all the more so. From here you have a demonstration when Ketanim Ligdolim, when the smaller listen to the greater. From the fact that Rabbi Yeshua was willing to accept Rabbi Gamliel's authority, even though he was a greater scholar, what will be in a case where you have two and one, and neither one is a, 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 the Nasi. Neither one has any extraneous authority. Then, of course, the smaller should listen to the greater. See, you can learn it from here. The only reason that you could avoid having Rebbe Gamliel um, give in to Rebbe Yeshua is because Rebbe Gamliel is a Nasi. Otherwise, he definitely should have given in. Oh, there's a special fact right here that he was a Nasi. If he wouldn't be the Nasi, he would have to give in to Rebbe Yeshua because Rebbe Yeshua is the bigger scholar. Here you have a proof that the smaller should listen to the greater. Right? That's what the says. Objects to Gemara. Kal b'chomer? You're making a kal b'chomer? You're making an argument. You see that Rabbi, Rabbi Shul is in the Ram Gamliel only because he was the, the Nasi. Had he not been the Nasi, it would have been the other way around. That's a proof that the smaller should listen to the larger, to the greater. Says the Gemara, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. You don't prove that. Chiyubahu. It's a plain, obvious obligation. It's not the sort of thing that needs a proof. It doesn't need a proof. It's so obvious that it doesn't need a proof. The Brysa could not have meant from Rabbi Yishuzbi, that's how we know, that's our source, that's our proof that the smaller should listen to the greater. It would be like saying, um, you know I know that this, uh, two, uh, 5 plus 2 is 7? Because I heard so and so say so. If you have to rely on so 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 saying so to know that 5 plus 2 is 7, there's something desperately wrong with you. <laughs> 5 plus 2 is 7 is more obvious than anything else. More obvious than the other person saying so. It's more obvious than the fact that the light is on. 5 plus 2 is 7? I mean, that's something that you should know without any proof at all. So rely on anything else. Anyone whose mind is functioning normally and knows how to count and add can see that 5 plus 2 is 7 on his own. Here, he's telling me, from the incident of Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Gamliel, I learn, we have a source, we have a proof that the smaller should listen to the greater. It's ridiculous. You don't bring a proof to something like that. 
That's an obvious fact that the smaller should listen to the greater. So the Gemara says, what the price meant to say only is a psychological matter. When people see that Rabbi Yeshua will listen to Rabbi Gamliel because of the Nasi, then the smaller will take it to heart and they will learn how they should follow the greater. But not that they're proving the principle. But look what the Gemara is saying. The Gemara is saying that it's obvious that the smaller should listen to the greater. It's just, just something that doesn't need any argument. Right? Now, I must tell you, there are yeshivas, great yeshivas. I know from some of this uh, personal experience. They're great yeshivas because the leaders of the yeshiva, the teachers of the yeshiva, are world-recognized scholars. And you have students in the yeshiva. Student reaches the age of 20 or 21. He doesn't go to shiurim. Doesn't go to shiurim. Why? I've graduated. I'm above that. Whatever sources the teacher is going to prepare, I can read them also. As one of them told me, I'm also a scholar. I'm also a scholar. I said to him, you're at the Mir Yeshiva. The teachers of the Mir Yeshiva are world-recognized scholars. One of them is 55. The other one is 65. You have nothing to learn from them? You're going to read the sources on your own? Are you nuts? What's the matter with you? Do you have an opportunity to learn from such people? And you're going to sit and learn on your own? <laughs> That's the style. That was the style then. I haven't been there more than 20 years. But that, that was the style then. There's a, one guy, 27 years old, says to me, I've got I have a family. I've got to go out to work. I'm wondering what I should do to work. Do you have any advice? So I said, how well can you learn? I've been sitting in the mirror for eight years. I asked him, how well can you learn? He said to me, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know how well you can learn? He said, well, I haven't listened to a shir in eight years. And I sit in there with my chavrusa. And um, I haven't given any chaburas or anything else. And given any you know, research uh, presentations or anything. How should I know how well you can, how well you can learn? <laughs> He's sitting there for eight years. And he has no idea how well he can learn. I mean, that's just insane. It's insane. The Gemara says, obviously. Now, I'll take another example. You have a problem in Hilchos Shabbos, Hilchos Brachos, some, some halachas that you don't know. In many quarters, what you do is, you take out the Mishnah you look it up, and you decide it on your own. You solve it on your own. But, my goodness gracious, you know, the Rav in the Shul has learned the whole Mishnah backwards and forwards 20 times. You're looking it up because you have an index which tells you where to find it. Can you really trust your understanding? Can you trust that this is the only place where the Mishnah Bura discusses it? Can you trust that later scholars than the Mishnah Bura haven't perhaps gone with other authorities against the Mishnah Bura? What are you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm competent. I can look it up on my own. What about the smaller listening to the greater? Smaller than the greater doesn't just mean if the greater happens to knock on your door and say, Do X! So can't, I can't say, no, no, I'm not doing X, I'll do Y. It doesn't mean just how to resolve conflicts. It means that the greater is your resource and you should use him. I'll prove it to you. There's a Rambam. It's very interesting. If you have Pirkei Avos, the ethics of the fathers, um, yeah, get, get Sidurim, I'll show you something very interesting. Who's the 
It's a Gemara. Yeah, sure, it's a Gemara. I learned much from my teachers, more from my equals, and most from my students. Okay, we're starting. It's on. Well, this is Shem Yeah. Yeah. Um, Turkey Over starts on page 545. <laughs> Uh, on page 547, Mishnah 6, Yeshua ben and Itai of Abel received the tradition from them. Yeshua ben says, Asei lecha rav, make for yourself a rav. Make for yourself a rav. Okay, the translation here says, accept the teacher upon yourself. But anyway, the words in the Hebrew are, Asei l'cha rav. No, no, Asei l'cha, for yourself, make for yourself a rav. Okay, now... One second, one second, one second, one second. Jump away. Take a look at Mishnah 16. Next page. Amagamli said, I say the harav. Same words. What page? 548. 549. Right? You see what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. So it says the Sailor Harav twice. Who's from them? Who's them? The previous ones, the ones in the previous mission. Oh, that's okay. So why does it say the same thing twice? The commentary of the Rambam says because it has two different messages. One is. Make for yourself a teacher. Make yourself a teacher. Don't go doing independent research. Don't, uh, you know, uh, just swim blindly in the information that you have. Make for yourself a teacher. And the other is, make for yourself someone who will decide for you what the halacha is and what you should do. A posek. Someone who decides for you. You need a superior. It's not enough that you do the research. Make someone for your teacher, what that person in, in the mirror didn't do, and make someone for yourself who passes for you, who tells you what to do. Now, this is a Mishnah. And this Mishnah is stated quite generally. I heard from Rabbi Kaganov who used to be in Philadelphia when I used to see him. He said, to whom is this mission addressed? Presumably it's addressed to everybody. Or at least everybody for whom it's possible. So, you have a chain of scholarship. You have...
people who are just starting out or people who receive little education and who know very little, they have to go to somebody superior who will be a teacher and somebody superior who will decide their, their halakhic shavas. What about the shul rabbi who went to yeshiva for six years and has a ordination hanging in his study? It says a selach harav. That means he has to make for himself a teacher and make for himself somebody who will give him religious decisions. And what about the local Rosh Yeshiva in um, Bell Harbor, Long Island, or in uh, um, I can't remember where's Notre Dame, South Bend, South Bend Indiana, which has a firm community and has a curl there. I'm serious. It's unbelievable, huh? <laughs> South Bend, Indiana has a, has a, has a Kurlo and has a Rosh Kurlo. The mission is talking to the Rosh Kurlo also. I say, Harav, make for yourself a teacher and make for yourself somebody who gives you religious decisions. So you automatically get a chain of authority going to the top. Now, it could be that once you get to the top, there's nobody to push above. Though even at the top, it'd be very rare to find someone who's at the top in everything. Be very rare to find somebody who's at the top in everything. So a person who may be in taking everything into account is bigger than everybody else, but a complicated Shiloh in Ribis, which requires mathematical calculations and everything else, maybe there's one fellow who specializes in Ribis in, in, in interest taking, and you'll have to go to him. But that's the general rule. So automatically you have a chain of authority going to the top. Somebody who says, well, I've lived in yeshiva for eight years, so I, you know, I, I, I answer my own chalice and I decide my own decisions and I learn from the Sfarim and I don't. So then what happens to the Mishnah? The Mishnah says, I say, look, I'm rough. Yeah. Becoming a student of a teacher. Finding someone who's willing to teach you. Not uh, wandering off independently and doing your own research and pretending that you yourself are one of the scholars. And it's a specific mitzvah? Uh, it's a mishnah. Uh, the word mitzvah has a lot of different meanings. It's a mishnah in Perkeyavos and uh, the mishnah tells us what to do. Yeah. Now what was somebody like when Moshe Feinstein did? So that's what I said. If you're at the very top, uh-huh. then it may not be possible for you. It may not be, although as I said, even if you're at the top, in general terms, there'll still be specific areas where you're not at the top. Um, for example, uh, there were certain post scheme who specialized in technology. Technological shadows. They can use a, a crockpot on, on Shabbos. They can, you know, our fluorescent lights, uh, fire. I mean, technology, right? Um, and other abundant who may have been greater in other areas, when it came to technology, they just never learned it up. They never, they never analyzed that. So if a question technology, they'll have to go to them because they're the specialists in technology. My Rebbe told me 40 years ago that there's the age of specialization. People become expert in particular areas and then we can rely on them for those particular areas. Yeah. If you have somebody who's at the top, at the top, top, um, when it's less potent if that's, that's possible, there'll still be benefits to just talking to somebody who's below you just to get, you know, I'm saying that we're not doing it. We're shutting the point of being down. 
Okay, I'll repeat the question for the tape. Uh, is it, even if you're at the top, is there anything beneficial in talking to people who are below you? I want you to know, yes, a very good question. There's a Hasidic idea that having someone that you treat with respect, having someone whom you go to, is important for your spiritual life altogether. And it could be that, as one, uh, I forget who said this, but uh, to accept someone who's superior to me as my teacher, there's no kunz in that. I mean, that's, he's superior, so of course he should be my teacher. The kunz is to accept someone who's inferior to me as being my teacher. Now, that sounds a little funny. You know, why would he be my teacher? Okay, there are deep things here. Uh, the Mishnah Pekeva says, Eizu me kol adam. Who is wise? Someone who learns from every person. The deep reason is because every person has a soul. Every soul has unique characteristics. Every person was put in the world for a different job, for a different tikkun. And that means, I look at each person in the world, there's something in his soul that isn't in mine, something in my soul that isn't anybody else's soul. I could learn something from that. The soul, after all, is a manifestation of God. So, even if I'm greater than that person in general knowledge and general intelligence and general experience and age, which often go together, <laughs> though it's not fashionable to think about it that way nowadays, but it often does go together. Uh, but still, he could be 16 years old. There's something in his soul that I don't have, that I can't imagine. And if I open my eyes and open my mind and my heart, I can learn something from him that I can't learn from anybody else and I can't know on my own. So, but but this is a big topic, and I, I don't want to go into any more because I want to share some other sources with you. Yeah. The, when it says "asel haram," it doesn't say. It says "make for yourself haram." Doesn't say necessarily greater than you. Okay, the word "rav" in the Gemara means teacher. It could be a teacher of shoemaking. Rebbe in the in the Gemara means anybody who is an expert in an area where the, and Talmud means disciple disciple in shoemaking it's used across the board but the, the assumption is that the Rav would be superior to the, to, the, to the disciple there is a phrase that you find many times in Shas person does something and, it, and, the, and the, the comment is Ein ruach hachamim which literally means the spirit of the sages is not pleased with him. That's enough to be a condemnation. Or positively, the spirit of the sages is pleased with him, and that's enough to be an endorsement. The fact that the sages respond positively is already an endorsement, and the fact that they respond negatively is already a condemnation. That's just so now. That means that if I want to know whether what I'm doing is right, my approach, my focus, my priorities, I should submit it to the judgment of the Chachamim and see whether they're pleased with it or whether they're not pleased with it. King David, the Gemara says, he had a scholar called Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is explained to mean um, embarrassment from his mouth. David said, when he discussed Torah with this person, this person was superior to him in Torah. And therefore, King David was embarrassed when he discussed Torah with him. You see, our sources will not say that King David was the greatest. No, there was this Mephibosheth, and he was superior to King David in Torah. And the Gemara says, David Amelech, 
consulted with Mephibosheth on every psaac. Every time he was asked to render a decision, David Melech went to Mephibosheth and checked it out. Because he said, I am king? And God inspires me with, with uh, the Holy Spirit? So what? When it comes to a legal decision, if there's somebody greater than I, and he's on hand, why should I take responsibility for the decision on my own? I go to the greater person and check out to see whether it's, whether it's correct or it's incorrect. Um, just one second. Now, the Gemara in Erevin says that there was a discussion between Basil and Beishamai. Whether Noach lo Adam shenivra or lo Noach lo Adam shenivra. Okay, here the translation is very difficult to make. Noach lo Adam. Noach means something like Pleasant, valid, appropriate, comfortable, fitting, generally good. That man was created or not good that man was created. You want to say that they debated this for two and a half years and then there was a vote. And the vote favored Shammai. Yeah, Lono. Now, a lot is packed into this little Gemara. First of all, was the creation of man appropriate, valid, fitting, and so forth and so on? God did it. How could it possibly not be? What kind of question are they discussing? Doesn't the Torah say at the end of the creation of everything, including man, that God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good? What kind of question are they discussing? Well, I have a little bit of surprise for some people. There is a mitzvah to try to see on your own what we have received from our tradition as true. Of course, we've received, if we received it as tradition, it's true. There's no question that it's true. I have no doubt that it's true. But it's a mitzvah to try to see it on your own. No one less, no less than the Maharshah, and Brochus Tav Yitzayin Amar Aleph, Margaret the Boomer of Mayor, that's where the people can look it up, says that it's a responsibility of every person to try to investigate on his own to see whether the things that we have received in our tradition are true. So you try. It's a mitzvah to do so. If you do, if you succeed, you've done it. If you, haven't, if you don't succeed, you say, I tried to see it, I didn't. Of course it's true, I just failed to see it. <coughs> it might not even be my fault. It may be that God hid it in such a way that I can't find it. Okay? But I should make the effort. So that explains why they raised the question and what they were, how they were investigating. What kind of question is this? Is the question whether the chicken is kosher or treif? How many minutes after sundown you have to keep Shabbos? What words to say in Rosh Hashanah in the, in the davening? What kind of question is this? This is a philosophical question. A question of hashkafa. And they voted on it and decided it. Anyone who thinks that the Jewish authorities are in charge of chicken livers and the words of prayer and the minutes after sundown for Shabbos. And that's all. That's their, the sum total of their responsibility and authority is making a terrible mistake. Because everything about a Jew is mitzvah. Mitzvah encompasses the whole of life. Not limited just to whether the chicken you eat is kosher or trait. Your ideas can be kosher or treif. 
and they can be kosher and create for different degrees. The Torah has laws for what you should believe, what you should think, what you should feel, how you should dress, what you should eat, what you should say. The Torah has laws for everything. And the Sanhedrin, or whatever body exists at any particular time, is responsible for all facets of Jewish life. Here you have a question of investigating whether what we see in our world supports this piece of the tradition or doesn't support the piece of the tradition to the point where we could say we see it on our own or we don't see it on our own. And they paskin, you can't see it on your own. And as Rabbi Meisman, who pointed this out to me, said, once they've voted on it, it becomes us to disagree. It becomes us to disagree. And this is, this is carried out also in the Rambam. I have a Rambam here. Um, in the end of the Mishnah Torah, Hilchos Mamri, the laws of rebels, the very first halacha. There, the Rambam says that the Sanhedrin has three roles. The Sanhedrin is Ikar Torah Shabal Peh. They are the foundation of the oral tradition. Amudei Horo'o. They are the pillars of Horo'o. And Mehem Choku Mishpat Yotei V'chol Yisrael. From them, laws go out to the whole Jewish people. So now, what are these three things? Amudei Horo'o. The pillars of Aurora means you have received laws on the one hand, you have an actual situation on the other hand. How do you interpret and apply the laws that you've received to real life situations? Aurora is teaching. Teaching means there's information and you have to be it has to be explained to you. You have to be shown how to apply it. From them, laws go out to the whole Jewish people. That's the legislative function. The Sanhedrin can, well, make laws, or for the Rambam, propose laws. They have a legislative function. So, number two is interpreting the tradition and applying it. Number three is making new laws. What's number one? Iker Torah Shabal Peh. They're the foundation of the oral tradition. Says Rabbi Meisman that this means they tell you what is Torah and what isn't Torah. They determine what Torah is. The whole of the oral tradition is under their authority, under their guidance, so that anything that isn't written explicitly in the Torah, and even there you have to know what the Torah means, all of that is oral tradition, and they tell you this is a genuine piece of oral tradition, and that isn't a genuine piece of oral tradition. And that will include everything, including matters of philosophy, so-called. Hashkafa. When you think about it, mitzvahs concerning belief are very common. You have a mitzvah of Zorah, of idol worship. What is idol worship? What kind of mistake does it encompass? The Rambam says in the laws of idol worship something very interesting. How did idol worship start? It started when people said, there's a creator. Everybody recognized the creator because that was Adam knew that. Noah and his children knew that. Now let's look at our world. The sun plays a very, very important part in our world. And God created it to play that part. He wanted it to play that part. Since God gave over to the sun this extremely important function, wouldn't God want us 
to praise the sun, to celebrate the sun, because God put it in such a, a magnificent position. Wouldn't we be doing something pleasing to God if we would recognize the position of the sun that God gave it by expressing praises to the sun? Says Maimonides, that was the first step in idol worship. That in itself constitutes idol worship. But he doesn't say why it's idol worship. Actually, when you think about it, it sounds like a reasonably good argument. God gave it that character. God gave it that position. It really is playing such an important role. What's wrong with it? Now, I have seen speculations of various kinds. I'll tell you the idea that attracts me. To utter praises to A implies that A is the kind of thing that can appreciate praise. What kind of thing can appreciate praise? Only something that has some independence. Only something that acts on its own. Then you're praising it for what it did. You imagine a scalpel perform... A... <laughs> That's the point of the example. You imagine a surgeon who performs magnificent surgery and someone says... What a great scalpel. Did you see the way that scalpel cut the flesh? Did you see the delicacy with which the scalpel severed the, the vein? What a magnificent scalpel. You know, it's idiotic. The scalpel didn't do anything. The surgeon used the scalpel to do what he's doing. You can't praise an inanimate object. So here's the mistake. The mistake is attributing to them enough independence to appreciate praise. And that's a terrible uh, distortion of how the world works. Nothing works independently. God has no partners in, in running the world. He runs the world on his own. Okay, but that means you're being taught now what is an appropriate philosophy of how God runs the world and what is an inappropriate philosophy of how God runs the world. And therefore you're being taught what you can believe and what you can't believe. To think that the Sanhedrin doesn't have authority over matters of philosophy is simply to ignore the fact that we have many mitzvahs of belief. Yes? You're asking when, I don't know why you're asking particularly about companies, you could ask about human beings as well. Uh, but, but take your example of company, an abstract company that produces good products, can I praise it without being an idolater? Um, it, what you're raising, in a way, is a quite tricky point. I'll tell you, I'll give you a simple answer, but, but what, what you're raising is discussed in some length in, in, in the literature. Um, a human being is granted a measure of independence. We are given free will. And therefore, it is appropriate to praise a human being's decisions because he really does make his own decisions. Unlike the sun and the moon and the wind and the sea and all the others that God uses like a scalpel to achieve effects in the world, he uses them. Not so the human being. Much of what the human being does is because of his own free decisions. Because of his own free decisions, praising him is appropriate. There it's realistic. What they did is they attributed something like human activity to a non-animate non object. Yeah. Yeah. Back to uh, Avodah Nazis when you were talking about King David. We know that Shlomo Melech had a pretty much magnificent genius. 
So can you say that his genius can determine that he can make a psaac on his own because of his genius or he can actually do that, do that alone? Like he, he can not know the Allah, but he can figure it out because in his own genius mind, he can figure out the Allah for himself. Uh, we're, now, we're, now we're really got apples and oranges. Can Solomon, because of his genius, figure out the Allah? Yeah, not guy's a genius. If he sits here long enough, he can figure out the Allah and say, I'll go with the Allah. That'd be like saying a person is a genius, can sit here long enough and figure out what's written in a Chinese text without learning Chinese. Oh, well, how's he going to do that? Maybe he's a genius, but he's, one second, he's got to have the information to study. He can't do it, he can't do it without the information to study. Even a genius can't do it without, without learning the, the, the Chinese symbols. You have initiative, but you have, have to have the information to study. He's going to have to start at a point where he gets the information from somebody. Genius or no, he's got to get the information. Genius is a person, but take it back to the beginning. He can't pass him without information. He can be the most greatest genius in the world. He can't comment on what Shakespeare meant unless he reads Shakespeare's plays. He can't figure out what Shakespeare meant unless he reads the plays, can he? So how can he figure out the Allah unless he goes to somebody and learns Jewish information? Once he learns the Jewish information, maybe he'll be able to calculate it and analyze it better than the others. He'll learn that in discussion with them and they'll say to them, you'll be the Rebbe because you know it and understand it better than we do. But at the initial stage, he's got to get it from somebody. One last question. I want to finish up a couple more sources before we go. Oh, okay, good. I'm very glad you asked that. Das Torah comes from absorbing the Torah into one's being totally. And that includes living it. If you don't live it, then, are, then, then you can't really understand it. It would be like studying Mozart person who's deaf, studying Mozart and offering analyses of Mozart, one thing I'll tell you, that if there would be a new manuscript of Mozart discovered and scholars would be debating how it should be played, let's say it's the notes without the markings, without the temp- tempo markings, without the dynamics, the, the loud and soft, his opinion would be worthless because he's never heard it. He doesn't know what it's supposed to do. If you haven't experienced music, then your opinions on music are going to be very limited. A person who's blind and read about Michelangelo, <laughs> great, he read about it, but to comment on the statuary, to comment on the paintings, is, would be ridiculous. You can't see it. All right, so you're absolutely right. It requires experiencing it and being committed to it and sacrificing for it and, of course, knowing it intellectually. All of it. It's a package deal. Without, without that, you don't have it. Okay, let me just... Um, Mentioned a couple of more ideas to the Chovos Levavos Sharabos Elokim Perek Dalit the Gate of Service of God the fourth chapter says every action is either commanded or forbidden nothing is neutral nothing is just permissible every action is either commanded or forbidden now the context there is earning your living providing for one's physical needs. No, that means there are no neutral decisions. Every decision is between right and wrong, between better and worse. How are you going to make that decision? Better and worse, he means here, it doesn't mean that it's more efficient or, you know, there are better vaccines. He means the Torah will tell you one is better and one is worse. To us, a 
tremendous range of decisions look arbitrary. They look arbitrary. So then, the Chavos Alvava says, we're all subject to a terrible illusion. They look arbitrary, but they're not really arbitrary. So that means that we're missing out on how the Torah applies to the decisions. So then, of course, we'll have to go to a Torah source to be so informed. The Gemara Nieder, I'm not going to go into details, but Rav Kahana wanted to know what the din was in a certain issue of Rav Papa and Rav Huna. What do they what do they how do they live this din? So you'll say, well, how do they live this din? Why don't you just go and ask them? Because there's the possibility that if you'll ask them, they'll tell them the strict law which might be lenient. The strict law might be lenient, but they themselves would not make use of the leniency. They themselves would practice more stringently. If you ask them what the strict law is, they'll tell you what the strict law is. The strict law is lenient. He didn't want to know from them what the strict law is. He wanted to know what they did. Why? Because he wanted to follow their example. Because he was inspired by them. Because he wanted to try to live up to their level. So he didn't ask them, because from them they would, he would get the strict law. He couldn't ask them, and do you do more? That would be a question of pride. He asked others who knew practically what they did about, what, about their actual practice, rather than asking them what the din is. Because he wanted to live up to their example. So, what am, I show, what am I showing you? That the Torah is something which is, which is binding, even when the opinion you get is a leniency, if it, if you're not allowed to, certainly not allowed to make a sacrifice because you question it. It applies to every area of life. That's the way a Torah Jew lives. And I'll tell you as a final observation that this, I think, is the key difference between movements. There are movements that have absorbed this principle and live by this principle, and there are movements that, who, for whatever mistaken reason, reject it and don't live by this principle. And that makes a gigantic difference in how the movements are administered and what they do. In certain movements, if you ask a person or a group, why are you doing what you're doing? Because such and such a person, who is one of the leaders of the generation, told us this is what the Torah wants from us. One of the great joys of my life is that the person who's responsible for my development, the Boston Rebbe, my Rebbe, all he himself today is one of the great leaders of the generation, but when I met him, and he was much younger, he was in personal contact with all the great leaders of the generation. And I got used to that. When I came to Orsameach, the leaders of Orsameach run everything here on the basis of the great leaders of the generation. When Rav Shach, Zerosah was alive, they went to him once a month, Dov Schwartzman used to be the Rosh Hashiva here and gave the highest shear and set policy for the Yeshiva. He's, not, he's, he's older now and he doesn't have the strength to do it. They still go to Rav Yashiv with their Shilas, Rav Chaim Chanievsky. Everything is done according to the greatest leaders of the generation. In my naivete, I just assumed that that's the way it's done. I've come to realize that it isn't done that way everywhere. From our point of view, the first question you should ask an individual 
or a group about their policy is who certifies it? Who certifies it? What leader of the generation certifies that what you're doing is appropriate? And if they can't answer you, walk away. Walk away. Because the whole setup is based on gross irresponsibility. Yeah? Is there any, do you have any suggestion how one should pick a rub? Or find a rub? Or practice it? Okay, finding a rub uh, today, especially to find one of the great leaders of the generation to be your personal rub, is often not practical. But what you need is somebody, listen carefully, somebody who's in the chain. If he's in the chain, that means that he's getting his leadership ultimately from the top. So you say to him, okay, I'm, I'm going to ask you for a psak. Who do you represent? Who certifies you? Where are you connected? And if you know he's connected to the top, then you don't have to go straight to the top. There may be times when he'll send you to the top, but you don't have to go straight to the top. But I want you to know, the Eid Haredis, the court of the, great, of the most authoritative establishment here in Eretz Israel, the individual judges of the court have public hours where anyone can go and ask them any question. So half a mile from here, in, 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 in Gula. And they have separate waiting rooms, one for men and for one for women, and they alternate back and forth, and women go in and ask their questions, and men go in and ask their questions, and you can have any question answered. Any question they feel competent to answer. And you can ask on any halacha. And if you can't get to them, you can call them on the phone. And if you need them in the middle of the night, you can call them in the middle of the night. I have a daughter who called one of the post give at 1, 1 a.m. And she started to apologize, and he said, don't apologize. If you have to apologize, I'm not doing my job. I'm available to you. If you need me at 1 a.m., you call me at 1 a.m. It's a free service to the public. That's how a Jewish community functions. It's a free service to the public. So they can have access to genuine Das Torah. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, what did your daughter want to know? <laughs> she didn't tell me. So I don't know. You're welcome.